Thank you, Matt. Good morning and welcome. You can have a seat. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Eric Colser. I serve as a pastor here at Gospel Collective Church, and again, glad that you are here with us uh, this morning. Uh, I know uh, Jacob already mentioned these, uh, but if you weren't able to, uh, if you're visiting with us, and if you weren't able to fill out a guest card when coming in, uh, please feel free to also use these cards that we use for prayer or uh, next steps and in the meetings. Um, but feel free to put your information on there. And again, love to contact you, take you out for coffee, uh, answer any questions that you may have, even just get to know you a bit more. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, chapter one. Last week we started a book study in this book. It's a follow-up to his first letter to the Thessalonica, Thessalonica church. And um, as he was addressing uh, some concerns that they had, heavy persecution, uh, one thing that came up was when Jesus will return. And so he followed up soon, they say about a couple weeks, maybe a couple months after that first letter with their concerns um, and some hearsay of that Jesus already returning and uh, what's going to happen next. And so that's part of the purposes of him writing this letter and then purpose for us as well, giving us hope as we go through affliction and endure and to expect what's to come. Um, end of uh, the sermon last week, we uh, kind of hit on verse 5, and I do want to reread it uh, in context for what we're going to read in verses 6 through 12. So again, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting off with verse 5, which was read last week, and this will go into the context of verses 6 through 12. Um, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church and God, speaking to us, God's word says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And so when speaking of their endurance last week in persecution as being evidence of the righteous judgment of God, the Apostle Paul starts talking about that future judgment which happens when Jesus will Return. And here God gives both the church of Thessalonica and us hope. Hope of justice and also relief in their suffering. So let's read the rest of chapter 1 in its full context here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 12, the text that we're going to be covering today. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As you can see in our verses today, this is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. As verse 7 specifically mentions, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty 
angels. As we talk about the second coming of Christ, I realize that people in this day and age, and for a long time, have been obsessed with end times. What's going to happen, how it's going to happen, with or without Jesus, we see it displayed in stories and books and movies every year. Apocalyptic scenarios trying to give a glimpse of what life would be like after global tragedies, how it will happen, what will happen after. I mean, we have films like uh, in 1916 and 1951, the end of the world or when worlds collide, giving these scenarios. We have more recent obsessions with zombie apocalypses to this year's film, The End Is Near, and HBO seems to do a series every single year of these different things, from old ones like Leftovers, uh, new ones like DMZ and Station Eleven. And while largely void of anything Jesus, you'd be shocked to know that our culture's obsession with such end-time scenarios actually does come with some type of belief with Jesus in the end times. Even people who would not be considered professing believers, you'd be shocked that they, for somehow, some way, some reason, believes that Jesus has to do with the end times. According to a Pew Research survey a little over 10 years ago, among evangelical Christians in the United States, 58% believe that Jesus Christ will return to earth by the year 2050. And if you think that is a fringe position, listen to this. The Pew Research said that 41% of all Americans, not just evangelicals, all Americans believe that the second coming of Jesus is not only real, but it's going to happen in their lifetime. Now, when talking about Jesus' second coming, I want to give a kind of full picture of other kind of context, other scriptures of what this means before we explain our verses of today. In Jesus' first coming, we know Jesus came to earth as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, just as prophesied. When Jesus came, he fulfilled many of the prophecies of the Messiah during his not only birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. However, there are still some prophecies regarding the Messiah that Jesus had not yet fulfilled. And a lot of those are fulfilled when Jesus returns. The second coming of Christ will be the return of Christ to fulfill those remaining prophecies and will bring about an end times to the earth as we've always hoped want it to come as he ushers in a new heavens and a new earth. When Jesus ascended into heaven after proving himself to be alive after his crucifixion and death, the angels declared to the apostles in Acts 1.11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Matthew 24.30 declares, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Titus 2.13 describes this second coming as a glorious appearing. And the second coming is explained in most detail in Revelation 19, which I'll read just a small part of how Jesus will come. Verses 11 through 16, it's also on the TVs, or if you want to flip your uh, Bibles there. It says in Revelation 19, Then I saw 
heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a rope dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In his first coming, Jesus was the suffering servant. In his second coming, Jesus comes as conquering king. In his first coming, Jesus arrived in the most humble of circumstances. In his second coming, Jesus will arrive with the armies of heaven at his side, as described in Revelation 19. And with the majority of Christians who share a belief of the second coming of Jesus to defeat Satan, sin, and death once and for all reuniting the new heavens and earth we also know that there are disagreements and debate over the details on how it will play out in fact two summers ago scott collins and i led a summer study going over some of those differing views that christians have had over the last couple thousand years concerning everything from the 1000 year millennium rule what the tribulation looks like the rapture and signs of end times of course, one of the largest sticking points for those differing views in Christian eschatology is the timing of the second coming. That's where we get those big, scary words that sometimes causes church to debate and get angry with each other, like premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And we will be addressing some of those things when we get to the Antichrist in the next chapter, but the per- for the purpose of this morning's passage, we really want to focus on what will happen when Jesus returns, not when it will happen, which will be, again, addressed, addressed a bit more next, next week. The first what will happen that we see from God's word here, found in verse 6, 8, and 9 in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, deals with this. It deals with God's just judgment in Jesus' second coming. We see in verse 6, his words say this, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. We know that God is merciful. It's part of his attributes. We know that God is loving. And without taking away from his characteristics, those type of attributes, his desire for all people to be saved, he is also just as we need him to be. And as it says here, part of his justice is repaying affliction with those who afflict and persecute his beloved children. How does that happen? Verses 8 through 9 entails it through the doctrine and the reality, the truth of hell. In fact, these verses here shows one of the greatest detailed contrast to something that we all know is true and should believe as Christians. That's all throughout Scripture. That 
we're still a bit hesitant to talk about sometimes. And maybe for some in this room who are watching online, truly believe that there is a real, literal hell. There is a literal, true heaven. And that there is a great final judgment by Jesus in his second coming that will determine each and every person and where they will go. And although I believe we are scared to talk about it at times because we don't want to be viewed as those two extremities, fear-mongering Christians who seem to delight in telling people that they may be going to hell and that they get heaven and they use it as their main cell in evangelism, you know, those people who are like, hey, uh, somebody approaches them, they're seeking, like, hey, I want to know more about this Jesus. And like, well, let me tell you about hell, okay? We don't want to come across as those type of people, right? And to the other extremity, to not ever talk about it, to not ever address it, to not ever teach on it, to not even live like this is a truth. We don't want to think about our friends, our family, our parents, our kids going there. But church, we must accept the fact that it's true, that there's not gray here. Unless you feel like you can make things up like our friends across the street with purgatory. It's not in scripture. There's heaven, there's hell, and there's a judgment to determine it for each. Even celebrities have ignorantly promoted it. I'll never forget while I was in seminary in 2006, 2006, Johnny Cash's music video that premiered right after he passed that awkwardly revealed and showed celebrities such as Jay-Z, Travis Barker, the Dixie Chicks, Kid Rock, Keith Richards, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Kanye West, Coldplay, and Chris Rock pre-slapped, um, all singing about God's final judgment. Literally lip-singing lyrics such as, but as sure as God made black and white, what's down in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long, long time. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. And I'm thinking there, uh, do they realize what they're singing right here? I mean, one minute, one of the celebrities, Justin Timberlake, during those years is singing about can't stop that feeling and how he's bringing sexy back. And the very next minute, he's saying, sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. Judgment. Okay, then. And as ironic as that was, I also remember praying to God, asking for these bold black and white lyrics that some Christians are even too scared to mention or believe will pierce people's hearts, maybe even some of the same celebrities that are lip-syncing them, like they once did with the original author of, his, of these words right here. And the very person that made that song, who I feel like did his best to finish well pointing people to Jesus, and in the same way, I pray this morning that his scripture will pierce ours toward a place that we will know where we will go by who we know. Now, before we dive into that truth and those verses, 
Let's read verse 7 real quick and make sure we know where our relief comes from, both of the persecution that the church was going through, but also from what is to come for those who are stuck in their sin and in disobedience to God in verses 8 and 9. It says in verse 7, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Church, be reminded before we go into verses 8 through 9 that we do have relief if we know, believe, have saving faith in Christ. And to the opposite of that relief, we see Jesus and those mighty angels coming. And look what it says in verse 8. They are coming and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Again, church, this reveals and shows one of the most again, famous detailed passages of the doctrine and reality of hell. Hell here in these three verses is a part of God's just judgment and is described or pictured in these three ways, which is consistent with other New Testament scriptures. First, it is described as a place of punishment. This is the chief description of hell in the New Testament and is commuted communicated by, get this, every single New Testament author. Every one of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quoting from Jesus in the majority of time that they mention it to the writers of the epistles, James, Peter, Jude, whoever in the world wrote Hebrews, and the apostle Paul here in verses 8 and 9 and many other letters that he wrote. In verse 9 here, Paul pictures God as the just judge, and hell is part of the punishment that one has for not knowing God, obeying the gospel, and for persecuting God's people. In this punishment, it is described as just because of the self-evident consequences of sin that we are both born with and choose. Knowing that its punishment is ultimately both physical death, but also spiritual resulting in hell. In fact, that's the context of the majority of those passages that I mentioned that is described or, or revealing and sharing about hell, how it is punishment of sin and what sin causes us to do against God. However, we also see that the punishment of hell consists of eternal conscience suffering. The second picture we see here in this text is one of destruction. Although not mentioned nearly as much in comparison to the other two pictures, punishment and the next one, this passage in 2 Thessalonians is one of the most prominent used as it's, as it's described as of eternal destruction. Although conditionalists may interpret this in a way of complete extinction or annihilation, I would strongly agree with Douglas Moo in saying it is best understood to show that hell is final an utter loss, ruin, or waste. It's not that those who are in hell cease to exist. I do not believe that. But instead, they cease to be useful or exist in their original intended state, and that this graphic picture reveals that those without Jesus have failed to embrace their purpose and meaning in life and will now forever waste it. The opposite of what those in Christ receive in fulfillment and purpose. 
That's why Jesus says, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The last picture we see here is banishment. This is a separation or exclusion away from the Lord and his good glory as described at the end of verse 9. This picture is especially prevalent in Jesus' teachings as he constantly contrasts those who are welcomed into his kingdom and those who don't believe and receive a banishment outside of it. This passage is once again one of the strongest pictures of this. And I've, as I've personally grown in my love for the Lord, in my opinion, one of the scariest. I know punishment, I know fire, I know destruction, all words to describe this is one of the most popular descriptions. But for me, again, as I've grown in my relationship and intimacy with the Lord, this is probably one of the hardest to accept. Especially when you look at your church's family. This also means that an implication of his return is that we can trust him to judge and to make all things right when he comes. No matter what trials, what suffering, what challenges we face here, we know it is only temporary. And that we are to refrain from seeking revenge or judging people. Because as described here, is true as the doctrine of hell is. We can entrust that the true and worthy judge will deal justice according to that truth. That any delay in the Lord's return is actually grace and mercy to allow more time for people to come to repentance, have true saving faith in Christ, and find salvation, as Second Peter chapter 3 describes. Knowing that there's no hope of salvation for the lost after Jesus comes, and that today is the day of salvation. In fact, it's imperative that we share the gospel and the hope that salvation gives in Christ by grace through faith. And we must be careful and remember, knowing these truths, to not put ourselves in the place of God, who is the only one who can justly give such a judgment, and to not delight in it. If anything, it should break our heart, even for those who persecute us. You find in the scripture here, I mean, as hard as those words are, you don't see a delight coming from Paul writing to those people in it. Yes, it's relief, but it's not a delight. It should break our heart, if anything, even for those who persecute us. In fact, this scripture doesn't indicate such delight, again, in us from the vengeance of God, seeing our enemies burn, but instead the gracious relief we receive, which I hope would cause us to want that for others. In fact, let's now go to that relief right now, where you see to the one side God's just judgment in Jesus' second coming. We see in verse 7 and 10 through 12, God's gracious relief in his second coming. It says in verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This is relief both from our enemies who persecute, but then also rest for our sorrows 
and labor. That Greek word translated for relief means loosening, a rest. That instead of being agitated or worried, Christians should be able to relax because Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he'll be accompanied by his mighty angels. This truth is illustrated in the story Jesus told in Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and the beggar named Lazarus. The rich man who lived lavishly without regard for God. And Lazarus, who died and went to Hades. Whereas Lazarus, when he, I'm sorry, um, to, no regard for God or Lazarus. And so when the rich man died, he went to Hades. Whereas Lazarus died and he went to heaven or paradise where it says he rested. And when the rich man complained about his suffering in Hades, Abraham reminded him that he had received good things in this life, whereas Lazarus had received nothing but suffering and pain and bad things. But now, he said specifically, Lazarus is comforted here, that he is resting while you are in anguish. Church, we have temporary, momentary relief in worship and Sabbath on this earth. And church, I, I love it. Like my, my Sabbath time, whether it be at home or my, my late night kind of time with the Lord, celebration and taking in the moment of big answered prayers, someone receiving Christ after much enduring witness to them. There is relief there on this earth. But it's always temporary. Can you imagine a time an eternity where we have eternal relief with both our heavenly father and church family verse 10 says when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed quite frankly this verse amazes me a bit it says here He's glorified in us. Like, one of our missions, our church, specifically GCC, but like chief ends in life is to glorify God, right? We marvel him, it says, along with others, because others believe in our testimony to him. Even the rest and relief we will receive when being with the Lord, when Jesus returns, it pales in comparison to what is described here with the reward of both us glorifying him, and it says here, us being glorified. Being glorified in the saints, in us, and then to marvel at God and all of his glory. John Stott describes it in this way. For when the current is switched on, it becomes incandescent. So when Jesus is revealed in his glory, he will be glorified in his people. We will not only see but share his glory, and we will be more than a filament which glows temporarily. We will be radically and permanently changed, being transformed into his likeness, and we will glow forever with the glory of Christ, as indeed he glowed with the glory of the Father. That although God truly does deserve all the glory alone, this glory will possess all saints along that fellowship and the rest that he gives. And listen, church, this is very, very important. And that glory and what's described here 
as we are to marvel at among all who have believed at the Lord, because our testimony to you was believed, as he says. Church, this is very, very important, not only for us, but listen, for the next generation to get a glimpse of this on earth right now. This is what I mean when I say this. As of lately, there's been a lot of great stuff coming out, being written, cultures starting to be created in some churches, kind of proving, showing the statistics that what keeps teens and college students in the church, stuff like depth in scripture, discipleship relationships, faith modeled at home. But one thing that has not been written about or encouraged enough is this very thing. Pointing people and especially our kids to a big God that we can't but help to marvel at. That we can't but help to be in awe of. Experiencing what's described in verse 10 forever in seasons and times of their life right now to anticipate it and want to marvel and glorify him even more. Verbally praising him, pointing people to his sovereignty and how he answers prayers, showing how his word comes alive. And if we're not in awe of him ourselves, we will have a hard time pointing others, our kids, teenagers, to his glory in that way. When they see a big picture of God and are in awe of him and how he is in control, how he answers prayers, how he still does miracles today, his heart for those that don't know him, the power of salvation and his word coming alive, We'll get glimpses of that and yearn for that forever in heaven. Look what it says in verse 10. To this end, we always pray for you. To this end, to such things. Again, this is a strategic objective for us as a church. And I pray and hope we endure in such prayers, that we grow in this, knowing that his return is sure and that we fully receive everything he has promised in salvation and glorification. We are to pray for this, pray about this, specifically for witness and testimony to bear fruit and others in receiving it. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. You see in scripture like Acts 5 and Acts 20, stories of the early church, how often the apostle Paul would, would share this very wording, that God may make you worthy of his calling. We do not prove ourselves worthy of his calling in order to be saved, but we are proved worthy because we are saved. And we demonstrate his worthiness by passionately loving Jesus, living for him, and pursuing him regardless of circumstances. In fact, it's why in the classic hymn, Tis So Sweet, we sing Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Or you go back to the class of or and or. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Again, fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. 
Paul is asking and trusting God to complete the work that he began in them at their conversion. Of course, this is talking about sanctification, us becoming more and more like Christ until we are finally in Christ. And although there's our highs and lows and, and, and even still uh, us falling at times and, and God lifting us back up, even what we sang about us running from the Lord and him drawing us back near, that's why Paul is telling us to pray because sanctification is messy. Knowing, believing that through sanctification, using trials, using marriage, using discipline to help us grow and at some time be glorified. To remember that the end result is being refined like gold in that fire, that he finishes the work, as it says here. It is not wasted, unlike what was described in the destruction of hell. Oh, the joy of receiving that fulfilled work and reward, church, that we must still do the work for. There is work to be done by his power and his grace, done out of faith. That's why Paul also wrote in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do you see the correlation with this and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power? Church, do not grow weary of doing that good. We will reap a reward. He will finish the work. And it says finally in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is also why the second coming of Christ is a necessary feature and an affirmation of the gospel message. That Christ's first coming through salvation, through his death and resurrection, but his second coming will bring about the resurrection of our bodies, which is the final goal and hope of our salvation. The hope that we have of his return and it gives us confidence of that victory and the salvation of our mortal bodies from sin once and for all to have a glorified resurrected body that is pure and mortal that is incorruptible it's why the churches the church has throughout the ages have professed lord jesus come come lord jesus and again we share in as described there. Yes, we know and see how we share in his suffering, but we share church in his glory as well. I loved reading this, um, this illustration here from Richard Phillips concerning that sharing in his glory. He describes a story when General Douglas MacArthur signed the documents to accept the surrender of Japan and to end World War II, General Douglas MacArthur insisted that he would be joined by two generals who had been captured early in the war and suffered terribly torture at the Japanese hands. When sitting before the formal, as they surrendered, MacArthur took his pen and he wrote only his first name, Douglas, on the documents. He then handed the pen to these generals that shared in that suffering. They each wrote 
although it had to be one name on the document, the one gentleman wrote Mac, and the other gentleman wrote Arthur. And in a similar manner, as he wanted them to know that just like you shared and we shared in your sufferings, let you share in this glory. My name's not on here, it's all of us. And in that similar way, when Christ returns, those who have suffered for him and with him in this present age, it's we who will partake in the victory and to celebrate God's glory with him. And in the end, this is what we must remember and know, church. Both as described the truth and reality, that shared glory, how we will marvel at the Lord, how there's nothing greater and better as we will receive the fruit of such hard work. But then there is still a truth of hell that people will not be able to receive that. Again, that there's no gray here concerning when he returns his final judgment. No gray, black and white, light, darkness, sheep, goat, heaven, hell. And church, you heard the differences this morning. One of just judgment that's represented in hell and the other of eternal rest and relief. And the only person that separates us from the two is King Jesus. Knowing him and having him as our advocate, replacing our sin, which final judgment, final punishment is hell, and replacing it for his righteousness that graciously grants us heaven. Church, without being the kooky end is near guy. That's basic Christian orthodox truth. And it's pretty important. And so I dare ask a few things to conclude. One, are you living your life as Paul sums it up when talking about the second coming as well to Titus in chapter 2? renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you pursuing holiness in light of that? Waiting for his return should not be passive. It should be an active purifying of our lives in the pursuit of of his holiness and readiness for him to return. Number two, and this is going to be a couple questions in this. Are you viewing, speaking, living the way you need to be with others in light of this truth? Ask it a little bit more personal. Parents, are you teaching and guiding your kids according to this truth? The gospel and salvation is that important, and although we know only God can save them, do you celebrate the things that represent heaven more than this world? Do they believe 
in that final judgment? Do you view your neighbors and people all around you in light of that truth? Listen, I know. I know we've had a bad taste of that in the past, often when Christians led with that in evangelism. And not to say that it's wrong or is not needed. I even mentioned it in evangelism training this past Wednesday. It's one of these six spiritual longings that Tim Keller mentions that people have. The appeal to come to God out of fear of judgment and death. And that when contextualizing the gospel and getting to know lost people around you, you will see that God is doing a whole bunch of things and, and they may be more open to the gospel of Jesus because of their desire to be truly loved or to satisfy those unfulfilled existential longings or the appeal to objective truth after they've been so hurt by lies and deceit or the desire to be free and forgiven from the burden of sin, guilt, and shame. But this is still true. There is a judgment and death that there should be some fear of not to be the first thing you go to, to share the gospel, but even if it's for our own motives and mission. Death and final judgment is inevitable with Jesus' second coming. Do you have such a burden to call people into the right side of God's kingdom with that eternal judgment to come when either one dies or Jesus returns? And maybe you're sitting here or and maybe watching online and God is speaking to you right now and that black, white truth is hitting you. And you desire that resurrection, that relief, and that salvation in Jesus over the fear of such sin's consequences, death and hell. And to you, I ask, that you do what this next song beautifully says. Some of the lyrics I will read right now, will you take him at his word? Will you rest in his promises? Will you trust his cleansing blood that was shed to forgive you for your sin and exchange your punishment for that sin, death? His on the cross or yours to give you eternal life. Will you not delay it any longer knowing how important it is? Will everybody close their eyes, heads bow down. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I'm finished, I'm going to invite you to stand and for you to sing and for you to truly, truly ask yourself, do I believe what I'm singing? Tis so sweet to trust that trust and saving faith is what makes the difference between what was described heaven and hell. And as we even sing this song here in a moment, and you're going to see it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a rendition of the classic hymn, and you find yourself repeating the words and more and more and more when describing that trust in Jesus, you must ask yourself, is this true for me? Am I trusting in Jesus more? Because if you're not, again, this is some time for you right now, just you 
and the Lord in prayer for you to give that to him to ask for such continued faith knowing it's saving faith in him that saves you but he continues to do want to do the sanctifying work again spend some time with the Lord right now in prayer with him with whatever he's revealing to you whatever he's sharing with you for some of you that's more faith and trust in him for some of you that's a motive to share the gospel with others and for some of you that may mean you receiving him in your heart and life for the very first time saying i know i'm that sinner and that sin's ultimate consequence is that death both spiritual and physical and i know that jesus christ out of his love took that sin upon himself paid that death for me they rose from the grave defeating sin satan and death having all power and authority to do so because he was god that fulfilled messiah and i give him my life right now i turn from my sin and i have saving faith in you receive that eternal reward and relief of heaven whatever you need to do talk to him right now i'll pray Go ahead and do that. I'll pray. Father, as the Apostle Paul wrote in his scripture here, to this end, we always pray for you. I ask that same thing in, in light of you returning, in light of the finality of, of, of death, and that there's no gray about that judgment. God, we pray for such things. We pray for the souls and lives of the people that we love and cherish the most in our life, we pray for ourselves that we will continue to grow in faith and love for you and to be in awe of you and marvel at you and to figure out why we are not. Especially how important it is to model that for the next generation. God, that we may be worthy of the calling and will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power. to receive such a rest as we sing right now because of our trust in you. Oh, what a gracious gift. I pray, Lord, that we will act in obedience from the prayers that we lifted to you right now, Lord. And again, if there's anybody that received you for the very first time, we know there's a celebration, as it says in the scriptures, even in heaven right now, that the angels rejoice. They marvel at the power and wonder of salvation, something they can't even receive. 
and redemption in our hearts and lives. We celebrate that. We thank you for this time in your word. We pray that we grow through what we sing. In your name, Jesus.